This is Chris Damien, and you're listening to the second part of my recorded conversation with Danny Peterson. Danny is a former Catholic priest who now lives as an openly gay man. In this part of our conversation, we discuss his struggle to integrate his sexuality with his life as a priest, conversion therapy narratives in the life of the church, how homosexuality shows up in seminary formation, the rumors about McCarrick during his seminary days, scandals that his diocese kept quiet, and where he's been able to find healing and integration since leaving. Please note that this conversation includes adult language and themes and may not be suitable for young children. Um, okay, so, so you go to these meetings and you are introduced to this term, you're told by definition you have this wound and you're recommended these resources. Do you remember who some of the major authors or speakers were that were, that were from those resources? The guy who, yeah, the guy who gave me those resources, his number one was Elizabeth Moberly. Hmm. And let me say, Elizabeth Moberly is a very smart and coherent woman. And she presents um, with a lot of, I mean, it's very appealing and it's coherent. It's ra- It appears rational. So, you know, this isn't some desperate person with conspiracy theory in my mind it was very logical so um leanne payne was one of them elizabeth moberly there was a few others um but elizabeth moberly was the big one and she i i I don't want to be you know if correct me if i'm wrong but she coined the term same-sex ambivalence and she kind of coined the the whole notion that you eroticize your deepest uh emotional needs and her thing was, my father never loved me. I'm craving male attention. Therefore, I eroticize that. Christopher West, by the way, Catholic um, theologian, later picked that up very much and 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 would talk about like our the same sex yearning is likely a desire for the characteristics and attributes that you want in another. Therefore, when I look at a shirtless climber and say, "Wow, a beautiful six pack," it's me wanting that six pack for myself. My response to Christopher was, "Don't we all want a fucking six pack?" And I will, I'll add a disclaimer at the beginning of this, not language. Yeah, we yeah. Are, you can take that out know. if you want. It's fine. No, no, no. Speak freely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, Moberly and Payne, I mean, they're all over the Catholic world, right? They're cited yeah. by Christopher West, Jason Everett, um, I, you know, Mike Schmitz, who has some resources that rely on them. Uh, Joseph Nicolosi draws on Moberly, so does Father John Harvey. He relies on them throughout his work, um, and and they very much provide the foundational ideas for for courage and and their view on homosexuality. One of the interesting things about Moberly is she doesn't actually have any credentials in psychology. So, so yeah, her her degree is in theology, but her views. I'm actually reading right now for it on on sexuality, but her, her views are so deeply pseudo-Freudian. Hmm. Um, she, she takes her views in ways that, that Freud doesn't himself. And, and actually, in a lot of ways, Freud has much more restrained views when it comes to psychology and, and pathology and, and being able to d- diagnose the origins of, and, and treatments for certain desires. But yeah, Moberly, I mean, it's, it's thoroughly just kind of bad takes on Freud. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the way she speaks, you would think she has a PhD in it. At least I remember being, I remember being spitting with her. I said, wow, this is, I mean, this is, this is like a Ted talk. I remember thinking like now, now we could say that really remarkable. And I was like, oh, this is my wound. This is, this is the answer that I'm looking for. 
Yeah, Moberly is probably one of the most influential writers on homosexuality in mainstream Catholic circles. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think what we see in the Catholic circles is, I know you know this, but for our listeners here, like, there's a lot of pseudo blend of psych- pseudo psychology mixed with spirituality. For example, you have your mainline psychologist. I believe Nicolosi is, is credentialed, right? Is, yes. Is but then what other people will quote him and reference him. And there'll be like a mixture of a spiritual director, and like someone who's maybe taken one or two classes in therapy, and they kind of do this mixture. I mean, I, I had well-meaning formators my whole seminary formation say things like, for example, one time I was missing, I, I was having a little trouble sleeping and I was missing some morning obligations. And I remember, you know, one of my formators who had zero training in psychology say something like, do you feel like you're avoiding things? You know, he's trying to be therapist. Now he quickly said, "You know what? That's not my that's not my scope. Let me just backtrack. You need to be at the morning events, right?" So they would catch themselves, but you could see this desire because I'm people and people like Christopher West blending this. You know, he, his training is his theology. Um, Doctor Bob Schutz, he used to be. I don't even know if he's a doctor, but I don't know. He's, yeah, he's a psychologist, but, but no longer licensed. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But I, I think and Leanne Payne was a big one where she would blend the psychology and spirituality, and it could get confusing. You know. And I'm not I'm not trying to villainize them for it. I, I think that's a beautiful field to write in to speak on. But I think you when you're doing that, you have to be very cautious. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Leanne Payne's also really interesting. Um, she her work largely comes out of the Protestant prayer healing movement. Mm-hmm. She's one of the mm-hmm. major figures in that movement, and and a lot of what she'll do is she'll try to diagnose what we would today and and even then see as psychological issues or. Um, or questions. And she, at times even, will just say, well, these things are tied to specific demons. And in order to heal right. this, you need to identify the demon by name. Yes. And that's part of your healing. And Bob Schutz takes that and he makes it part of his seminary formation programs. Right. So, yes. so I have materials of formation programs from my seminary, the St. John Vianney Seminary in, in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and the materials instruct the seminarians to look at sexual sins or harms in past generations and to name specific demons that yeah. are associated with them, yeah. which is comes out of this yeah, Protestant prayer healing movement, not right. out of Catholic theology. Right. Absolutely. I remember I did, I went to one, not not Dr. Schuess, but I went to a deliverance weekend and i remember mm. naming the demon of homosexuality the demon of lust in the name of jesus and all those things i was having some problems sleeping at that time and i was having nightmares and that kind of stuff and um because i had so much inter intrapsychic tension <laughs> and subconscious tension um the demon stuff did not work the deliverance did not work the exorcism that they tried on the minor exorcism that they did i mean did not work the healing prayer did not work you know what worked coming out of the closet um, do you know I came out last June? I have not had one nightmare since I came out of the closet publicly. Not one nightmare. I was having two to four a week. Mm. Yep, two to four a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one thing they that the you one thing they didn't do. do. Yeah, right. As a, right. Yeah, as a seminarian and a priest. Yeah. Okay. So let's maybe we'll we'll kind of jump around a little bit in the yeah. time frame. So. Yeah, so you go to seminary, you become a priest, and you know, and we talked. Yeah, you mentioned coming out. You know, I mean, in a lot of ways, 
in in our conversations about it, it sounded like you really had kind of this ideal priesthood, you know, beloved yes. priest, wonderful parish, wonderful parishioners, yeah, um, doing things that you loved, and 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 yet it wasn't working for you, right? You know what? You know, obviously there are a lot of priests who have a lot of questions or struggle with their priesthood. For you, what made you finally? make the decision that I have to stop or step away or take a break from this. Yeah. So I would say my seminary formation process was six and a half years. And it, I very much went the span of recognizing the conversion therapy. I would say year five is when I said, wait a minute, this is not all adding up. And I, I got a, like a legit therapist who, who helped me with that. But I was so new to it when I was ordained I feel like I was just starting to come out of the um, narrative of conversion therapy, like six months prior is when I started to realize it was all crazy. That stuff takes a long time to undo, not six months. I was in the stage of what I would call the Bill Clinton don't ask, don't tell stage. And I'm like, okay, I no longer am praying for Jesus to change me, but like, I don't need, no one needs to know this. It's my personal business. And I remember using this. My parents don't talk about their sex life at the dinner table. Neither. I don't need to tell anyone about mine. And so it was very much a don't ask, don't tell. And I was so excited for ordination because you anticipate it for so long. Mm. And my first experience at ordination, I'm going to, I can say the name is St. Catherine of Siena Parish in Cedar Grove, New Jersey. Mm. And the pastor was Monsignor Bob Slipe. And it was some of the most terrific years of my life. I love that community. I love those people. I love Bob Slipe. Uh, he died this past year um, from ALS. Mm. Um, he was a dedicated, well-balanced, intelligent, thoughtful, compassionate man, um, very much like a father figure, an additional father figure. Uh, the people in that community welcomed me with open arms. Um, I did everything there. I worked with the little kids, the medium kids, the big kids, young adults, middle adults, deaf and dying couples, prison ministry. Um, I worked with the, the community of, of having Spanish as their primary language. I worked with them. I did all sorts of youth group stuff. I worked up in the school. I taught, I did um, mission trips, you name it, everything. And that's kind of my personality. I like to jump right in. And that community, I mean, I, I started faith and fitness groups. We did boot camps. I called it like, yeah, faith and fitness as one of those things. I mean, everything, we did everything. And, and that community was just so open to me and true cherished memories. I think what happened was the first two years where it was pure honeymoon utopia, you know, everything was great. And by the, but I was having a lot of conflicts with my sexuality and I was starting to get to the point where maybe, maybe this is actually something that's beautiful and worth exploring. Maybe this is God given. Maybe this is. And as soon as I identified that conflict, it became like a, a balloon or a beach ball underwater. I, I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I, be, I noticed it started to take over. It, it took time, but it slowly took over everything. Even during mass, I was distracted with it. I found myself only talking like on my personal days off. I would only hang out with friends who knew I was gay. I, I was withdrawing from other friends. I would go to places like New York City more. I would go to gay AA meetings instead of regular ones. I would try to seek out community. I remember trying to join like a gay ski club. And then I realized I only ski on Saturday when I work because I had, my day off is like Tuesday. Like who else has Tuesdays off? Um, I really started to, the conflict became more prominent for me. And then um, I really, I, I came 
I, I, I will be honest. I was actually acting out at that time. I had an app and I would go into New York City once in a while. And that brought me to utter torment and utter guilt hmm. and self-hatred. And it also lends itself to higher risk situations, to dangerous situations. And I remember a therapist asking me, he goes, is it better to put yourself in these high risk situations or is it better to be recognized by someone? And I just remember being like, no, I could never be recognized. I couldn't, I can't bring scandal. And he's just like, okay. He's like, no judgment. I'm just helping you point out that you're putting yourselves in high risk situations just because you're closeted. And um, I remember starting to think, I got to a point, I said, you know, either either this is going to get risky, riskier, I'm going to disappoint people, or I'm going to end up living this divided life where I try to find someone who's okay keeping a secret. And I just said, I, in my life of recovery from alcoholism, the biggest thing is radical honesty. And I was like, I, I can't live that way. I can't live with this divided heart. And, you know, the people were shocked because I appeared so happy and I appeared so integrated. Mm. But I, I, I just knew I couldn't live with that type of conflict. And I know I know alcoholism can show up as as extreme behavior in other ways, too. I know a lot of alcoholics say they go from one thing to the next, and it's it's a lifelong process of healing and recovery. But I said, I don't think for my sobriety and for my integrity, I can live with this divided heart, you know? I want to know what it's like to to flirt. I want to know what it's like to have a boyfriend. I ne like all those things up were so evil for so long for me that I never considered it. And the conflict between became too big. And and I'm a big fan of analogies. And I I I use the analogy of a cat allergy. If I'm in a house with a cat and I have a cat allergy, I can't just take a Benadryl. I also need to get out of that house, right? And and clean my and put new clothes on and take a shower. And so I felt like the church was that house with a cat, you know, and I said I needed to take some space away from the church to discern my sexuality. And I think I did the one thing that the church would not recommend, which, again, this is a theme, was I, I moved and I, I moved to a different city and I lived as an out and openly gay man. And that has been, I think, my biggest point of healing and integration. Dare I say more than the Eucharist, more than the sacrament of reconciliation, mm -hmm. My sense of healing and integration and relationship with God has been coming out and identifying as an openly gay man. That has allowed me to become uh, myself, and it has allowed me to actually have a an open and an honest relationship with God. Yeah, I want to come back to many yeah, <laughs> things, yeah. but yeah. but yeah, I mean, I would say you know, I there are many things you're saying now that I definitely relate to. I think for me, especially over the last year, working through a lot of trauma and learning to be more in my body, um, one of the things that I've learned is I'm able to appreciate the sacraments much more because I feel like that I can bring my whole self to them, right? So in a lot of ways, I almost, I, a part of me feels like, oh, I've never really been to mass because I was mm -hmm. so dissociated from so much of myself. And now that I'm coming to know and understand and, and live with and integrate so much more of myself, I feel that when I become before God, I come before God with, with more of me. And mm. and so, so I feel much more connected, partly just because I feel much more of myself. Yes. Yeah. That's a great insight. That's a great insight. Yeah. And that, that's what made, yeah, I kind of thought about that as you're saying, yeah, this was the thing that was really healing for me more than you know, the Eucharist or the sacraments, part of me wonders, yeah, well, well, I mean, if you, if you're able to finally integrate, right, even going to the sacraments, finally, there's so much more of you that that can go. Yes. Right. 
one little funny anecdote. So last June, after I came out publicly, because coming out for me was was many steps. First, it was like just my close friends. Then it was like friends and family. And then when I moved to, away from the New Jersey and the church, I moved to Salt Lake City. Um, I can't, I lived out there, but I hadn't told everyone back home yet. And it was one of those things like half of my life knows and half. So in June of 22, I decided just to come out publicly on Instagram and tell everyone. And um, I was going to the, the Pride weekend. It was my first Pride parade because the one before uh, the year prior got canceled because of COVID. And I was really excited. And I was downtown in Salt Lake City at the Pride. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, shoot, it's Pentecost. And I was like, I can't miss Mass on Pentecost. But it was Saturday evening, and I was like, tomorrow's the parade. I don't want to miss the parade, but I'm at the festival right now. And I was like, I would have to leave right now. And there's like thousands of people. I got a parking spot. I was like, if I leave now, I'm going to miss the thing. <laughs> and I was tormented. And I was like, I can't miss Pentecost Mass. So anyway, I drove to the cathedral. I walked in, and it's the cathedral in Salt Lake City does, does the liturgy is fabulous. <laughs> and they chanted the opening antiphon and I'm going to paraphrase. It might not be word for word. The antiphon said the Lord God has spirit, like all the nations, the Lord God has poured his spirit forth upon all the nations in that anointing. Let them praise and give glory to the one tr true God, something like that. But it said all the nations. And I said to myself, the people in this church are blessed by the Holy spirit and the people at that pride festival are blessed. And I put my, program down and I walked out. I said, that's all I needed. Hmm. And I, I went to the Pentecost for one and I drove back and I went to the pride parade. And I said, this moment, this is not an either or, this is not like God or the devil or sin or grace, both. And, <clears throat> and this is a moment where I can choose, like the Lord is still blessing me at the pride festival. I'm not apart from him. I'm not separate from him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, so, so I, I if I start preaching, by the way, that's just my inner. That's you can't take that out of me. I, I might go. I might like erupt into homilies. You know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do what you got to do. Yeah. No. Yeah. I want to come back to to a couple other things. Um. You know, one is I I do want to dig into more of like kind of the apps and and what led you to that mm -hmm. and the role in your life. One caveat that I will say is you know you don't have to answer any questions that I put before you. Okay. You know, just because you share some things publicly, I do not believe that the public is entitled to all of you. Okay. Um, so, you know, so 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 definitely feel free to let me know if there's okay. just certain things that you'd rather just keep for yourself. Um, but another thing that I want to talk about is, you know, people had this perspective of you during while you were a priest that you were the ideal priest, the model mm -hmm. priest, um, someone that others should emulate, probably um, inspirational for others mm -hmm. in, interested in the priesthood. And yet at the same time, you're having this struggle and the structure of the priesthood forces you to totally hide that struggle because you can't acknowledge this part of yourself. Right. And, and so you're, you know, you're trying to find, you know, do I make friends with the gay ski club as, as long as that's totally divided from my life? Do I go to yep. the bars? Do I get on the apps? You know, so, and, and you had a lot of friends in seminary. You went to one of the largest and probably most uh, in, in some ways, one of the most important seminaries in the United States, you know, what, how prevalent do you think the type of experience that you have is among American priests? Oh, wow. I will say that I think that metropolitan Northeast from kind of like Boston down to DC, um, I think presents a different presbyter than the country. 
because I remember going to, I would like to talk about that later. I, I remember going to a summer program called IPF and I did see that there was a little bit more variety in the priesthood and a little bit more diversity um, from, from a perspective of our shared experiences than I initially thought. But in the Northeast, I think my experience was very prevalent. I don't know if everyone went through like the drastic conversion therapy, but I would say people hide gay men hiding in the in the seminary was extremely prevalent prevalent way above the majority way above 50 significantly above 50 50 yeah. um i i'm hesitant to put an exact number on it because i don't i don't want to appear like i've done peer-reviewed studies <laughs> but if i had to guess if i'm sitting out, if we're just hanging out by our bonfire and 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 enjoying the summer evening and you ask me i would i would say my guess would be at least 60 to 70. Yeah. And I mean, this is so, you know, I mean, part of what comes to mind is the the article, I think it was the Washington Post several weeks ago about the grinder data oh, yeah. and having data being disclosed to Austin leaders about priests. And, you know, the lady, I think, just have no sense of the of the prevalence of um, of gay or queer men in, in the seminary and priesthood who are struggling and who are not allowed to to give any indication of that struggle and and so they do it um they experience it in a really isolated way but and then also just are encouraged to be extremely secretive about their experiences so they can't process them um in in normal ways or or find healthy ways to to relate to them because they can't relate to them at all yeah so yeah and and i just and and you're not the only person who has left the priesthood that I've, I've talked about with and then the consensus seems to be that this is the experience of a very very large proportion of of priests and and seminarians and and the church yes. is not in a position to deal with that correct it's very large so um in my time in formation it was only the house spiritual director who would include in his conferences and for those of you who are same-sex attracted the same would apply but there would be conferences when, when presumably at least sixty to seventy percent of the guys in that chapel or that room were gay, and the presentation was here is why celibacy is a sacred gift, and they would say, giving up sexual relationships with a woman, giving up a family, is a sacred calling, and here's why, right? And they wouldn't even acknowledge it. And I remember the first time the guy said it, it was like halfway through, no one even wanted to move because if you looked around, you know, no. And I remember, and he goes, for those of you presenting with same-sex attractions, the same would apply only for men. And it was like a pin drop, a pin, you know, you could hear a pin drop because, and people were like, oh, you're acknowledging that it exists. But definitely in my first three years, there a huge gay subculture. Um, we had this thing called pub night where once a month there would be beers and chicken wings and music. It was great. It was a nice fraternity. Um, but there would be the reputation that, I mean, it, it looked like a, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, I'm going to speak honestly. It was like a gay nightclub, but like after the first hour, I mean, the majority of guys in that house were gay. Um, there was a lot of what, like that were rumored to be relationships, but everyone kind of know these two were together. And that was in among priests too. Dozens and dozens and dozens of priests had, had relationships and it was kind of like, it was never said, but it was known. Um, the, the Cardinal McCarrick thing, I know bringing, bringing scandal and sex abuse is a trigger and is kind of, a different whole topic, but everyone knew about him. Everyone knew about him. And, and it was just one of those things that you can't do anything about it, but it was, it was in the culture. It was in the drinking water. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, everyone knew about him. I mean, you know, what, what did you, what would you have been in position to know about him? 
And and what would you have been in a position to do or say? Could anything be done or said? I mean, it was all rumors. So you would never know for sure. And I mean, I was always taught that you don't go with rumors as facts, right? But yeah, I mean, it was all, it was always rumored that he was hooking up with, with the young seminarians. Um, never rumors that it was a minor, always young adults. But um, a lot of times the seminarians, I mean, sometimes it was a simple, they all looked the same. They were all the same age. They all had the same look. And the joke would be, oh, the vocation director at the time, this was obviously his type. Because mm. the 12 guys from Columbia, they they were all 24 and all handsome and all looked the same and were all fit and were all thin and all had a big smile and none of them were overweight or bald. And it's the joke became, oh, this is his type, you know? Um, and I did want to be clear that the vocation director I worked with, um, that was never a thought for me. Like that, that was a, he kind of broke the mold and he was very, very sincere and committed to it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, clearly, you know, it's in the water. It's this open secret. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so much to, uh, to process. And, and I think early on in seminary, if I may say, seeing all them, all the, the like the, the very, like I would say more traditionally gay men, like very flamboyant and more effeminate and those qualities in my own internalized homophobia, it actually made it worse for me because I'm like, oh, well, I'm not like them. They want to wear fun things and go dancing. That's not me. I would rather play basketball. Therefore, I can be healed. Mm. That actually was evident data for me of, no, this isn't real gayness. This is a dad wound. This is a daddy wound or a friend wound. I'm not like them. You know, I'm not fabulous like them. Therefore, I'm I can be cured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that comes to mind too is just this whole, uh, you know, there was nothing to be done about McCarrick because it was all rumors, right? Yeah. And this is every single time that I bring forward a story of harm that someone's been experienced in the church, whether it's been abuse or termination unjustly or a failure to acknowledge or treat victims well one of the key responses is always well this is gossip right you know and and it's right. you know and i just think oh yeah it's it's of course we respond this way because as a church we've been conditioned to respond this way partly because the abusers in power have taught us to respond this way yes. when people address yes. harm and also, like, if, if there was a pastor or an auxiliary bishop who was doing these things, and I and I heard about it, like, I would feel comfortable going to the cardinal or going, but when it's, when the person in question is one of the top, probably the most five influential cardinals, prelates in the world, I mean, the only one above him is the Pope. And, that, I mean, Cardinal McCarrick was a massive fundraiser. He was a very bright man. And he, he it's kind of like Epstein and all these guys in our society. They're hard to touch when they have that much money and that much power. Who, who am I going to go to? John Paul II <laughs> and say, Hey, I know you're busy, but I heard some rumors. Can we talk about it like that? It's just craziness. So you just kind of stay in your lane. And and so there was a scandal when I was in seminary halfway through that the former vocation director, who was a, the pastor of the second wealthiest parish in the diocese was having these parties and there was a lot of alcohol and it was never said, but it was, it was all the gay guys going and it was a lot of seminarians hanging out there. And, a, and, a, and I guess, I don't know what happened, but there were some DUIs. And so people got caught with DUIs. And then about a month later, that pastor disappeared. And they said it was alcohol rehab, which if that's true, God bless him. I hope he gets sober and I hope he gets what he needs. But it's like they were, they, the rumors were all of basically just big orgies and, 
And it was so kept secret. The people who got DUIs were almost kicked out. I think they were all allowed to stay um, with a lot of reservations. Some of their ordinations was delayed a year. You know, it was a big thing, but like, it was one of those, like, it was all done very under, and I was like, what's going on? Something's up. And my friend's like, just don't ask. It's a DUI thing. And, but then that pastor just gets sent away. And it's just like, yeah, the rector of the college seminary um, got caught putting cameras in his vice rector, who was a young, handsome Colombian man priest in his bathroom and nothing was ever said he just disappeared i mean the vocations directors rectors of seminaries these are big positions you know it was everywhere it was in the drinking water it's it was and is and it is i won't use it in the past tense although i think they have cleaned house and there's not as many of those scandals happening now but it was everywhere yeah yeah i mean the other thing i mean i think a couple of things i i think one you know if you're someone who's seeking to perpetuate abuse, one of the biggest aids that you can have is the clerical closet, right? Yeah. Because then if you do things to someone, they can't talk about it because then that would also maybe make them appear that they might be homosexual and then should be subject to suspicion. Yes. Yes. Or if they are, it would maybe involve admitting that, right? And, and so yes. the clerical closet does a lot to enable and protect abusers um, and just prevents a lot of conversations generally that need to be happening of, you know, this person, I feel weird about them, or even just trying to work through boundaries you need in your own life as a human being of, hey, I yeah. experience attractions, and I'm seeking ways to relate to them, or being able to disclose or just be open about it so that others know how to exercise appropriate boundaries with you, yes. right? Yep. Right. Yep. You know, me coming out, you know, after that, I was able to have good conversations with close male friends about what's helpful or what's not. Right. And whereas yes. when I was in the closet, no one knew ways to behave with me that would that might be helpful or just aware of, of, of who I am and how I experience the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. I remember once I left the church, I was in an, my clinical internship and I felt attracted to an adult client that I had. Mm-hmm. I went to my supervisor and I said, this is very basic, but I just am letting you know, I'm just having some very slight. I mean, it was really mild. I just was like, oh, he's cute. I said, I'm just attracted to one of my adult clients and and um, I just want to let you know. He goes, great. Thanks for letting me know. I appreciate your honesty. Any specific support that, that that I could give? I said, just you knowing. I said, it just accountability. And he goes, great. He goes, do you feel like you could still be professional? I said, absolutely. It's really minor. And that was it. About six weeks later, he checked in with me. He goes, hey, loop it, circling back from six weeks ago. Just want to see how you're doing. If it's been a good problem. I said, not a problem. He's moving soon anyway, and we're going to be kind of wrapping things up. He goes, great. Zero drama, zero issues. If that was the church, I couldn't tell anybody. And then if I did tell someone, it would be like, well, praise God that, you, that you're like working through your wounds and just keep praying about it, right? And don't tell anybody else because you wouldn't want to scandalize anyone. Couldn't tell anyone about it, get some weird response, and then it would fester. And then I wouldn't have a sexual outlet anywhere else because you're celibate. And then you would become obsessed with it. And then you would misread signs. And th- these are how... This is how abuse cycles start by being trapped in these situations, I think, you know? Um, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, I think, yeah, certainly that can be part of the dynamic, right? Yeah. Um, yes. And yeah, and, and definitely, yeah, I mean, you're not, we're not talking about everyone's experience. We're not, right. you know, we don't want to universalize um, your own experience, but but, yeah. but it is your experience and your ob- um, observations. And yeah. also you've been trained to... Um, to understand a certain degree or, or respond to situations yeah. of abuse. 
Yeah. So, uh, so let's go back a little bit and, and if you're open to it, I, I'd be really curious to kind of just unpack um, the role that kind of the apps played in your sure. life as a priest, you know, how, how did you get into that? What role did it play in your life? What role did it play in your decision to that you needed to make changes? Because obviously there's there's one trajectory in your life where you do what everyone else wants you to do, which is yes. put on the happy face, keep doing this thing, which involves keep doing all the secrets um, right. as long as right. no one knows about it. Right. And and just kind of not just knuckle, white knuckle through mm-hmm. this stuff and just keep being happy. In the next episode, we'll dig more deeply into Grinder and the role it plays in the Catholic priesthood, as well as what Danny has learned from his experiences and what he hopes for the church for the future. Thanks for listening.